Noble Dairy Queen's new summer blizzard menu is back and it is stacked. Dive right into the summer celebration with their new peanut butter cookie dough party blizzard. You can sink your red spoon into their world famous DQ soft serve filled with delicious chunks of chocolate chip cookie dough, swirls of creamy peanut butter topping and peanut brittle crunch with sprinkles. If the peanut buttery flavor isn't your jam, their fresh take on cobbler a la mode certainly will. Say hello to the Picnic Peach Cobbler Blizzard. You can also let your taste buds crumble with the ultimate cookie blizzard that features Oreo, Chips Ahoy, and Nutter Butter pieces. Dairy Queen knows everyone loves a good comeback, and fan-favorite blizzard flavors Frosted Animal Cookie, Brownie Batter, and Cotton Candy have made their triumphant return. Summer Blizzard flavors are now available at your Noble Dairy Queen stores with locations in Kankakee, Bourbonnet, Moments, and Mantino. Happy tastes good. Thankful for stories. Hold on to the lifetime we Hello and welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and this is our monthly episode where we team up with the Kankakee County Museum and we present something very fascinating in our county's history. And this one ties in really well with the uh, museum's biggest event of the year. I, well, one of the biggest events, I should say. It's not just the one. There are others, uh, like the the Gallery of Trees during the the, the Christmas season. But uh, the Rhubarb Festival, uh, which is the 32nd annual Rhubarb Festival coming up uh, this Sunday, um, May 22nd. And that uh, features a lot of new things this year on top of the Rhubarb that's always there. Um I know there's the car show, there's a, a there's kids activities, there's the rhubarb pie eating contest. Um and uh, we'll get into that some more uh I'm sure as well, but I'm pleased to welcome once again Jory Walters and Jack Clacy from the Kankakee County Museum. Welcome to you both. Whoops. Oh, that's my There we go. I was looking for my my applause there. But it's always great to have you guys here. Um now, there's a new exhibit that people can see starting uh, on the day of the Rhubarb Festival at the Kankakee County Museum, and that's what we're here to talk about. Yes, we will be um, presenting uh, the small family and every kind of branch of the small family, the good, the bad, everything, and um, the Dr. Small, Dr. A.L. Small is the one who actually grew the rhubarb 
first, where the museum is actually standing, is where a lot of the rhubarb was grown. And so we decided um, that he should probably have um, an exhibit that um, shows exactly why we have the rhubarb festival. But through the ages of this family and how influential they have been, uh, through the years in our community. Yeah, I mean, to Kankakee in general, from the days of being a doctor, growing rhubarb, mm-hmm. horticulture, agriculture, uh, mm-hmm. eventually starting the uh, the newspaper. Mm-hmm. There's a governor in the family, mm-hmm. all these things, and, and so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's start at the, the beginning of the small family, where... How did they wind up in Kankakee, and, and when when was that? Uh, Dr. Small and his wife came to uh, Kankakee from Lapore, Indiana, and they first settled in the area near the state park. And then they um, eventually came to what's now called Western West Kankakee. Um, they were one of the first to really purchase property in the area um, that was 1855 and the other parts of Kankakee had been settled a little bit in the south all the north etc were established for the most part 1853 is when city of Kankakee was established but the west side it was kind of still no man's land so they were one of the first to 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 be on the side and they eventually did purchase a lot of the land and then resold it uh, eventually. And do you know why the move from Laporte? Did they, did they know, did they have relatives out here or anything like that? Mm, or? They settled at Rockville first, I believe. Wasn't yeah. It, the Rockville yes. area. Which was the um, old Indian reservation, or not mm-hmm. reservation, but the uh, Shawanasi mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Indian camp or Indian the, the, village, village yeah. which by that time was empty, of course, because the Potawatomi had moved west. But there was a, a little settlement, a Rock, Rockville settlement, pretty much about where Rock Creek and on the north bank of the river at that time. And I think I'm not sure if he was the first doctor there or not. Do you recall? Sir? <clears throat> yeah, it was the first. And he um, did, uh, serviced them for the, out, the outbreak of uh, smallpox. Um, outbreak among the the natives there, so he was there tending to them, and then decided uh, to move to uh, this area. To what? Right to West, West Kankakee. Kankakee. Yeah, and and obviously to us knowing West Kankakee for for being heavily populated now, and to think mm-hmm. of it back then as. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Just wildland. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. There were very few cabins south and west of. The river were uh, beyond south of where Kankakee later became mm-hmm. settled. So they bought this land and the the house uh, or uh, well, the whole museum campus was all part mm-hmm. of the, the small family's right. property. He um, built the house. He already had two children by then when he came to uh, West Kankakee and he built the house. Now what you see there is a big house, but the original was, was much smaller. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. you recently walked me through, which was absolutely amazing. Thank mm-hmm. you again for that. Um, 
Yeah, you were they were telling as we were walking through the house, you were describing all of the additions. You're like, mm-hmm. and this is another addition mm-hmm. and another one. It yes. grew along with the family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> family grew, the house grew, yeah. Um so the the land that was his is where the museum is, where the trail all the trees are. Now the trees were as thick as you can possibly imagine. You couldn't see one tree. Among them, that was so thick. It was like a forest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then where that, where also where the uh, school is, which did not come to our property till uh, 1976. But the little um, stone building that's there was part of the original home, and um, little Len Governor had his chicken coop in there. So that was original. The garage, of course, is not that was um, added on. There used to be a barn, which is kind of where the flowers are near the entrance uh, of the property. And it was uh, a horseshoe um, uh, driveway as it is, and the pump is there. But that's where he grew um, the rhubarb. Now, there was a little bit of land across the street. There was a, a street um, Eighth Avenue, but not really. I mean, it's a street, but and it was dirt. dirt. I'm sure, yeah, country yeah. road, country yeah. road at that mm-hmm. point. And he was a physician by trade. He loved horticulture, but being a doctor was his main practice. So he practiced an office in his home. But remember, people came from the north side of the city to come and see him. That was quite a distance for people back then on non-existent roads in the the, the worst weather and et cetera on the carriage and the horse. Yeah. And that's one thing I try to stress to, to the younger people, <laughs> the transportation. Yes. You can't get there in 30 seconds like yeah. you can now. Um, so most of the time, would he make house calls or would he, people – he would make people come to him or – Probably. It probably both. Both, right? Yeah. yeah. I had heard, and and maybe you can enlighten on this. I've heard someone told me one time that Doctor Small was he was obsessed. I, obviously, he liked rhubarb. He grew a lot of rhubarb. But did he have a belief that there was something special about rhubarb that it had healing properties or medicinal purposes? It, it wasn't for medicinal reasons. Did he use it? And I heard that too. Yeah. Yes, that. I would say probably, um, they, I think, you know, back then being a, a physician as well, I would think that he would have looked into that. Well, what do you think? I think so. Yeah. That's the it's first like I a, heard of it. Uh, yeah. Someone mentioned that to me the other day, um, that it was the reason why he had so much is probably mm. because he used it. For his practice, possibly. Nope, because he did so well at growing it. And he was very successful in asparagus as well. But he perfected it. He really got good at perfecting um, the uh, kind that he did, that he really did well in growing and selling. Now, Mm. back then, also rhubarb, he was grew to be um, the largest exporter in the whole country. So he really got good at growing it and selling it, but there was a big demand for it. So that was uh, a big part of what 
I think, inspired him. Do you know why there was such a big demand for rhubarb at that time? Children are naturally drawn to art and the creative process. For them, it can be a form of expression as they explore the materials, gain confidence, and feel a sense of competency as they create something based on their own ideas and efforts. That's why Little Me's studio in Bourbonnais created the Big Kids Art Lab for ages 5 to 12. Little Me's studio crafted this safe space for your big kid to slow down, be in the moment, and be comfortable making messes while trying something new. Big Kids Art Lab meets every Thursday from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. at Little Me Studio across the street from Olivet Nazarene University in Bourbonnais. Studies indicate that art making has so many positive effects for the brain, body, mind, and heart. Enroll in one class at littlemestudio.com or sign up for the entire session and save. littlemestudio.com to sign up for Big Kids Art Lab. Make sure you follow Little Me Studio on Facebook and Instagram. I think it was it was you know for pies making and for uh, general use, but the thing that really made Governor or Doctor Small uh, and his operation successful was he developed a method of forcing. Mm-hmm. rhubarb plants so that they would the rhubarb would be available in the winter months for example mm-hmm. uh, and he built a, a forcing sheds out west of the house where they just proceeded to whatever whatever process he had they were able to cause the uh, rhubarb to continuously grow you know they could do a continuous crop in, in the winter months. Oh, yeah. Did he use any? Was it just sheltering of the plants that he used? I mean, I I don't know. Was there any trying to get heat involved I think, in I that? I think I think that was uh, heat was involved. I, I haven't read much no about sunshine. the no yeah, sunshine. Yeah, that's what blows my mind. There's no mm-hmm. sunshine. Obviously, mm-hmm. heat lamps don't exist. Right. You know how is no he he. Um, figured out that if su- in the in the indoor rhubarb, if any light sunlight hit the plants, they did not form. So it had to be in complete darkness. That he figured out they will grow um, if no light is hitting them, and he was successful at that too. So all year round, and then it became um, generational in his family. Yeah, come down a couple of generations until the market. Um, demand for it just wasn't there. But also, a lot of people tell me rhubarb grew naturally yes. uh, in a lot of people's yards. And they, you know, it was very popular to make baked goods with. Yeah, I, I heard it It, it just kind of almost, it spread, would spread very easy too. Like mm-hmm. if you grew one plant, it would yeah, just kind of. Like most perennials, it will spread mm-hmm. by stolons or by underground yeah. Something else that you might find interesting is in his early years, he also had another very successful crop, uh, the Osage Orange. I don't know if you've ever heard of those or not. If you've been to the museum along the north edge of the, the Horseshoe Driveway, those trees are actually Osage Orange plants, which have gone berserk and grown into tree form. Yes. Uh, in the On the prairie in the 1850s, of course, there were relatively few trees. Everything west of Kankakee was pretty much prairie groves, and the only place you'd find trees would be along the streams. So, and this was before barbed wire was invented. 
So farmers needed some way of fencing off some of their uh, of their grain crop fields to keep the wandering cattle, which was another major crop, out of the. So the Osage orange, when it is properly planted, it grows quite fast. If you plant the the plants quite close together and prune them, within about a year you have an almost impenetrable hedge. Yeah, they they grow very thick. And uh, there's remnants of those around Kankakee County, but he sold, you know, uh, Midwest-wide. He was one of a number of Osage orange growers in the Midwest, but uh, was able to be very successful. And uh, it's an interesting sidelight. I don't know how long, probably, I believe that barbed wire pretty much came into availability in the 1860s. So that probably had a really serious effect on the Osage Orange business because you don't hear much about it after that period. Now, Dr. Small had two children when they moved here. His oldest two children, May and Suzanne, were already born. And then uh, the rest of the children came later after they built um, their home. And there was three more children, right? Four. Four more children. Yeah, there was um, the next in line after that was John, and then little Len, and then uh, Calista, and then Mabel. Okay. So their family's growing. Obviously, the house is expanding. Uh, how, how, do, how does the story continue for the, the smalls as the years go by? Um. They were just a normal family on, you know, kind of not in town, but not in the country. They were just kind of on the edge. They had a little little bit more money because, remember, he had a nursery business, very successful, sold plants, sold trees, um, sold rhubarb, uh, was a physician, uh, saw patients. So he was, he was very busy and very successful in every aspect. In fact, we have more stationery from all the businesses, not from just him, but from the family on down, that we could do the entire exhibit just on the stationery uh, alone. Really? Of yes. all the stationery from all the different, different small businesses? Yeah, that morphed off so many pieces. But um, So he was very, very successful. So they were just a, a family um, that did the normal routine of the 1850s um, growing up. Now, Sister May, she was the eldest, but she passed away when she was young, about 17 years old. Uh, And then everyone else grew up and just kind of, they were in the area and then they weren't, and then they came back. And so um, they all kind of went their separate ways a little bit. What I want to know with Dr. Small, was he heavily involved in the community? Is is that how is that where the small family starts to get their their prominence in the community? I from, was from him or, or was it really more from his children? From what I gather from reading a lot of material, I think it starts more with Len because Len was governor. But he did so many different things before he was governor. Started out when he was little and he grew. He was into agriculture. So he was 
um, on the agriculture boards. He got the interstate fair going, which is predecessor to our current uh, county, county fair. fair. Yeah. Um, he did so many things in the community, political and non-political, that I think really um, paved the way towards this family. And he had the longest lineage, if you know what I mean. He had um, the 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 um, children who did the newspaper. Uh, who decayed WKAN, etc. It was from his lineage. It, that... it was from his side. Yeah. The his... Uh, mm-hmm. acquisition of land. Uh, the small family eventually owned a very, very large amount of land in the West Kankakee area. I think it began probably on a smaller basis with rhubarb fields and so forth under the doctor. But I think when Len became a young man, uh, the pace accelerated of acquiring properties and virtually all of what we would consider West Kankakee, the area of essentially west of 8th Avenue out to farm fields and from uh, Route one, what, 114, I think it goes out toward Hersher, yeah. north to above Court Street uh, at one time or another was owned by the small family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that initially was farmland and were farms. They had uh, traditional grain farming, of course. They also had a large livestock operation. Uh, Len was very involved with all phases of the agriculture business and so forth. Uh, And you see advertisements uh, in the old newspapers about, you know, uh, livestock sale by lend small farm, small farms and so forth. Uh, the rhubarb, I'm not sure where, aside from a, a large rhubarb operation right at what is now Small Park, I know at one point they had a, some large uh, uh, planting or large farming area of rhubarb across from what is now uh, Riverside Hospital. Mm-hmm on uh, 113 South, because we have photographs of uh, rhubarb harvesting and so forth on that, on that site. And, and so even, so even when <clears throat> Dr. Small passed away, Len continued mm-hmm. the, the rhubarb operations oh, on yeah. top mm-hmm. of his agriculture mm-hmm. operations. And he was very involved in, and this is by about the 1890s, uh, in the county fair as an agriculturalist. Uh, he and a group of other young businessmen in town said that this, this fair is not doing well. It was having, you know, it was lacking interest and was not attracting people. Uh, they sort of revived the whole fair thing. They changed a lot of policies, began bringing in more interesting outside entertainment, for example. Uh, and so that and that led eventually to the interstate fair, which in the 1920s and early 30s was the second largest fair in the state of Illinois after the state fair. So Len was a big part of of that, along with other local businessmen. Did before uh, before his run as as governor did did he serve 
as an alderman or a mayor or anything like that here locally? Oh, he was on the county board, wasn't he? Yeah, he was part of the county board. He was um, agriculture secretary. Um, For the he state. did mm-hmm, many, like I said, many different things before he was in the top position for the, for the state. Um, there seemed to be like no end to the things that he was associated with, um, that he was interested in. Great business businessman, and then his sons. He and his sons actually did um, the the Daily Republican. Now, back in the day, there are many newspapers circulating in the area. The Daily Republican was one of them. Um, And then it boiled down to they were the last paper. So it was the the Daily Journal. Now it's just the journal. So that was 1903 when the Daily Republican started. And so did Len start that or did one of his sons start that uh, in 1903. Well, actually, it was in existence in 1903, and it was a uh, badly failing business. It had okay. been founded by someone else. And First National Bank, uh, which is where Leslie was uh, mm-hmm. a cashier or was an officer of First National Leslie Bank, and Len was on the board. Yes. Okay. Uh, they, uh, the Republicans' uh, credit was very bad, and it was held by the bank. And so uh, Len, who was in, in his role as a bank director, uh, suggested that Leslie, who was a pretty good businessman, uh, go over temporarily and, and work at the paper for a while and try to get their finances straightened out and get it function, uh, functional and profitable again. It was supposed to be a short-term, ex- uh, a short-term uh, assignment, and it took the rest of Leslie's life. He, he was the publisher of the... Daily Republican, later the Republican News, and eventually the Daily Journal until he died. And I don't remember what year he died. Oh, 1957, I think. 1957. And obviously, right, it's still in the small family today that owns the Daily Journal. Mm -hmm. Leslie's sons, uh, Burl and Len Howard Small, uh, took over the newspaper operation. Eventually, Burl... Ran their radio and uh, television or cable TV operations, and Len ran the newspaper until his death uh, when he was killed in an auto accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now Len's sons, Len H.'s sons, uh, Rob and uh, Tom, the the boys are are running the business now and have for years. So there was two Lens. Yes. That, okay. Well, actually, there are even more. There's yeah. more than yes. okay. Len, Len Howard Small was Leslie's son, grandson of Len. Okay. His son, Len Robert, who is Rob Small, is currently the president of the Small uh, Newspaper Group, and I believe there's an, another Lennington in the in the firm somewhere. I think <laughs> one of Burl's sons, yeah. if I recall. Wow. They interchange the names so much in that yeah. family, especially in Len's line, um, that it's when we're putting together a family tree. You have to be very careful, very right? Very careful. <laughs> I did actually. I wrote out by hand his lineage uh-huh. on a huge piece of paper, um, and I 
keep it in that file. But um, I had to be very careful. I did it in pencil. Yeah, because you probably knew you were going to have to erase because you'd be like, oh, wait, that's the wrong lens. I, I traced back over it in, in, in uh, marker to make it, you know, because you could see it. But So that can make things very confusing. Yeah, I had to be very careful to note who was married to who and, and which date and which um, year and everything because all the names are so interchanged. Yes. The, one of the interesting features, I think, of the uh, new small exhibit that we're going to be opening on Rebarb Festival, uh, Jory and uh, Diana Crowley, our curator, have been working very hard on for the last several months. One of the neat features is going to be a large wall. When you walk into the Satendia room, the wall at the other end, the one big wall, is going to be actually a large family tree, <laughs> the genealogy of the of the small family. So all of these complicated relationships will be much more easy yeah. to follow. Uh, right, yeah. easy to follow than, than listening to them right now. You'll be able mm -hmm. to actually walk into the room and yeah. see it in front of your face, That's and right. you'll, you'll understand it probably yeah. a lot better. That's the, the idea of having everybody in one space, so to speak. <laughs> and then, because um, we don't have... The, the Centennial Room is not does not have a lot of wall space. There's a little bit of space than a door. There's a little bit of space than a door. You know that kind of thing. Yes. So, I said there are certain things that I think we really need to um, make sure that we put in the exhibit. So we need to make room for this, 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 this. But I said I want to make sure that the family is represented as a whole. And then also talk about individual things of, of individual people. Um, so I said the idea of the family tree to make sure that everybody can see which one is which. Which one is which, <laughs> which of. ones were involved with the newspaper. Yeah. And you, taught, you, you briefly mentioned earlier all of the different businesses besides the Daily Journal that the small, all the different smalls in the small family uh, had. Mm -hmm. So um, and they were very uh, intricated with the museum when the museum was dedicated and they've been a part of the museum. So I said, well, we have to make sure that we account for the small memorial park um, and then our um, museum that they gave us the land to, to be able to, to have this historical Still, yeah. society. So there's many things that we need to include in such a small amount of space. So um, Diana is the one who's the creative end of it. And I'm the one who just, you have the knowledge, right? You're like, okay, so I have this information. Diana takes it and figures out a way to display that information. Yes. Yeah, she has a strong art yes. background. Yeah, she's an amazing artist. Yes. I've mm -hmm. seen a lot of her work. I follow her on Instagram, and I love seeing the work that that she posts. Um, one, I'm just going, just no, go ahead. Jay. One interesting item in relation to this exhibit: the exhibit is being held in the Centennial Room, of course, which, which is, is our. The first area. Yeah, the first room you walk uh, into, the, the main entrance. It was the first addition to the original museum uh, in 1953, and it was given by Mr. and Mrs. Leslie Small uh, as an acknowledgement of the county's and city's 
Centennial, which is why it's called the Centennial Room. Oh, okay. I didn't I didn't realize that before, and that yeah. would have been shortly uh, before he passed away, or not too long before. Mm-hmm. Or right. What uh, three four, four years? Three or four yes. years. Yes. Mm-hmm. And technically, and there's a plaque on the front of the original museum building. Uh, technically, the building and the the park are a state memorial to Governor Lund Small. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first curator of the museum in 1948 was Mrs. Fanny Still, who had a long history with the the small family because uh, when Len and his young family were going out west in 1904, somewhere in that period, I think, to see one of the western exhibits, uh, you know, state national fair kind of things. Uh, one of the kids got sick on the way, and they were in Washington State, and there was a, a young nurse named Franny Still who was they had contact with, and she stayed with them through the period, made sure the child was all right, and eventually they hired her and said, come back to Kankakee with us. <laughs> so she did, but she didn't really do any nursing. In, for a while, I think she kind of you know, kept an eye on the kids. It was a little bit of a, a nanny kind of thing. But eventually, and for many, many years, she was the secretary for the small farms, which were a big financial operation. Uh, she worked probably most closely with Bud Small, who was... <laughs> Len's son, Len's Len, oldest son, doesn't he? Okay, yeah. And I know we, um, if and also if uh, someone that's listening to this now wants to learn more about Fanny, they can listen to uh, the episode we did that's for right. uh, Women's History Month. That's correct. Um, they can, uh, so going back, I think that was March, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it was March. March. Um, they can listen to the March episode and learn about Fanny still, too. Um, but yeah, it's, um, do you, that's something I get, I think we asked at that time too, when we were talking about Fanny was, I was, you know, wondering what got the smalls to donate that whole property mm-hmm. to the historical society yeah. at that time. Well, um, cause that's a lot of, yeah. of property and, oh. and, and, and I mean a prime prime location also the 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 houses on Callista and the um methodist church were also part of the property i think probably school or the other end but that and there used to be a house on charles street so a little bit more because i came across um some paperwork concerning their sale to the um uh church some paperwork regarding that. But anyways, um, in 1936, um, Governor Small passed away and um, he left the home to Suzanne. Suzanne was the... She was the artist, Oh, wait a minute. She passed away in 1931. Excuse me. She passed away in 31. And then the house went to Governor Small. She was older. Okay. So she passed away in 1931. She was the last descendant to live in the home. And then in 1936, uh, Governor Small, who inherited, he passed away. So the property was in limbo and kind of decaying for from 36 to 48. Uh, and then it went to Leslie, who was, who was older. And... So in 1947-48, he decided with his brother-in-law, Arthur English, 
uh, that they really wanted to do something in memorial for their father as governor. So they decided to donate their family home and the family farm, all of it, to the city of Kikikiki to have the home preserved for historical purposes and to have it dedicated to um, Governor Small, but also left a little piece of land for the Historical Society to have a museum and then also a little bit of land for the Civic Center uh, to be built. And that was um, financed by the Women's Club. They built that. And that would have been in the 50s. Uh, yeah. 48, 49. Oh, late, right, late 40s. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Civic Center was was built just uh, open just a year after the museum did. And I think what makes the small house fascinating to me is it's simple, but yet it's kind of sophisticated mm-hmm. at the same time. It's mm-hmm. not a, a big grandiose house that you would see mm-hmm. in, like, let's say the Riverview District. Right. But there's something about the house that is just makes it simple but uh, sophisticated at the same time. At least that's that's my interpretation of the house. There's uh, something, in, in fact, about the appearance of the house. As you know, it looks like it's made of cut stone. It's got smooth, what look like cement blocks. Or, yes. That's not. That's stucco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the original house, if, if, a number of years back, and I can't remember when it was. I think it's 70s or 80s probably. There were some problems with the stucco, and it was all peeled off. And you could see the underlying stone was just piled limestone like so many houses you'd find out along 113. And the stucco was eventually replaced on it. But the reason for that in the first place uh, was to sort of give the appearance of a fancier cut stone house. And it was not just that one. There were other houses in the area that were done the same way. I think it was kind of an upscaling Okay, so that that would explain. To be honest, I prefer the original sort of. Look. Do you really? <laughs> yes. I guess I'll have to look at uh, pictures again mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. see see which one I I yeah. like better. I'll have mm-hmm. to study that. Um, I I know uh, there there's I guess when it comes to the small family, uh, it, it can be kind of controversial of a subject to uh, longtime residents of Kankakee County, um, just because of things that happen within the family. They've done so many amazing things, but uh, all people a lot of time reference Len Small mm-hmm. and the controversies that surrounded his time as governor or even before governor. As treasurer, state treasurer. Yeah. yeah. And and I know some of that stuff is included in the exhibit as yes. well. We, I felt it was, well, I did and I expressed, I felt it was important to include the good with the bad. Um, yes, he was governor. Yes, he did many great things, but he also was um, indicted for embezzlement. So a little bit of a, a, a tarnished, you know, reputation. But we wanted to include um, everything and not talk a lot about this and nothing about that, but to kind of just give a, a very good image. Also, uh, talking about um, the death of Stephen Small, 
Yes, to make that would sure be included as well. To include that, but not to um, emphasize it as to mm-hmm. make it a focal point to not not be upsetting. Y- yes, but to to say this is what happened mm-hmm. to this particular member yeah. of the family. Yeah, that that's what I uh, I, I try to emphasize as well. It's just. Um, it's it's not to um, discredit the the family. It's just to present. Well, this happened, and that's that's that. That's yeah. fact. You know, yeah. the the governor was uh, you know uh, tried for embezzlement. You know that happened. Um, there was rumors, but he was acquitted. He was acquitted. Um, the rumors being involved with with him and the gangsters at that mm-hmm. time. You know that. That happened, um, yeah. The 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 horrible murder of Stephen Small in the eighties. That happened, yeah. Um, and uh, so it's just just to recognize it is yes. is good. We definitely want to represent an even hand of the good with the bad. Um, it represents the family as a whole, and then to um, Make sure that people who were not born in the late 80s who didn't know about Stephen Small or people who knew he was governor but didn't know um, that he was a businessman or didn't know that he was indicted for embezzlement and to, to present these things but not to be so um, upsetting to any family member who might be there to look at it. Yes. Um, but just to be even about it. When I had... had said, I think we should do an exhibit like this. I really felt it was important to include um, everything. Yeah, and someone could really look at some of those tragic events in the small family's history, and it's really bizarre, especially starting with Len Small's indictment. Because I remember one of the last times we talked about it on the podcast Right after he was acquitted, his wife passes away. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't too long after that, Len dies in a car crash. You know, yeah. like it's just. That was quite a bit later than that. Though. Was uh, it quite, Len, was it a lot later? Len Howard Small, yes, was what year? That was 1980. 1980s. Mm-hmm. So that would have been like his grandson. Oh, I thought you were, there we go. Well, <laughs> Getting yeah. all the yeah. Too many Lens confused. Lens, yes. Too many yeah, Lens, too no. Many I, Lens. Yeah. I thought the original Len. Died in a car crash. Oh, no. He no, died he at didn't. Home. Oh, okay. Okay, see, yeah. I'm getting confused. Yeah, Len yeah. Howard, who was <laughs> his grandson, the was the one who was He died in a car, car crash. Car crash at, uh, on Route 113 South oh. at Warner Bridge Road. Okay, okay. A lot of people have unfortunately passed away oh, yes. on that road in that area. It's a dangerous, dangerous road. And when Len Howard was killed, there was a, a time when the general fortunes of the small family were really on the rise. At that point, uh, the newspaper, oper- they owned, I believe, six newspapers around the country. Wow. They had a a weekly, what was it, Family Weekly, I think it was called, it was a, a newspaper insert was quite a a good-sized one that were, were used all over the country. And, in fact, Len had just been elected the president of the American Newspaper Publishers Association and was— at the time he was killed, was on his way. It was being driven up to uh, a meeting in Chicago, I believe, or maybe it was, but uh, of a committee of the Newspaper Publishers Association. His wife, Jean Alice, 
took over and ran the operation until her death quite a few years later. She did. She was an incredible journalist. She, My wife, who was librarian at the journal for many years, worked under her supervision, and you know, she just was an incredible... Uh, she was a great news person, even though she had no journalism training. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I've, I've heard the same things about Jean as well. <laughs> so what are some other things we can expect from the exhibit, uh, you know, unveiling that for the first time at the Rhubarb <laughs> Festival uh, on May 22nd? That is a good question. I'm wondering. <laughs> I mean, that obviously, myself. you don't want to give give it away, um, um, uh, all away, because we want we want to encourage everyone to go see it, whether it's at the Rhubarb Festival or not. But obviously, it'll be a little more exciting if you did go to the Rhubarb Festival when it's seen for the very first time. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine that myself. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> how it's going to. Because I'm Look, sure you're still putting the final touches on it, obviously. We, we are. So. Uh, trying to make all the decisions on what to – because there's just – there's so many things. And what we did was was I first pulled archival materials um, as possibilities. And then we went through boxes of the actual artifacts. And pulled out different things to use. Now, what she's actually going to use of the things we pulled, what we have room for, um, I don't know. Okay. One of the things that is an advantage, I think, is, of course, we have this huge collection of material, not just on the small family, but on local history. Uh, Our photographic collection alone, I think, will be really uh, an advantage there. A lot of... Pictures from our own archives will be part of the displays. Uh, original documents, uh, objects, artifacts, things that mm-hmm. the, some members of the small family through the years owned or was in use. Everything from, you know, maybe a campaign button to a fountain pen or a, a, a woman's fan or whatever. I'm not sure they exist. Jory knows yeah. all these, but I know what the general kinds of things that we would have added. Because when you develop a an exhibit, what you're really doing is telling a story. And you want the viewer to learn about the entire uh, content of the exhibit. You like to move them along from one thing to another so that they absorb it as they go along. You don't probably want to overwhelm them with a huge amount of material yeah. at one time, but you want to refine that down to just the concise, important things that you want the viewer to carry away with them. Yeah, and that that's kind of like even with this podcast episode, um, there's going to be so many things that we did not talk about, and someone might bring that up when they hear this episode, and it's like, well, we can't bring up Right. Every single thing. Yeah. We're just trying to give you an overview. And obviously, if you want to deep dive even more, you go visit the museum. You can dive all you want um, oh, yeah. in, in there. And another thing that we we talked about, Jack and I and, and Diana, is I wanted to make sure I include um, actual um, uh, articles, like newspaper articles. Um, and they said, well, people are not going to stand there and read the whole thing. I said, that's true. 
But if we see a headline, headlines in the newspaper do not look much like they do today in today's newspapers. So I really wanted some things to be attention-getting, and then they could could stand there and read the whole article, but we could put at the bottom a very simple explanation of what this article is about, Mm -hmm. to paraphrase it, but Mm -hmm. to make sure we include an actual... actual archival material so that they can get a sense of this is what the newspaper looked like. This is um, how they did a newspaper. This is how they did an article. This is the real thing. Not the real thing, not a copy, mm-hmm. not our interpretation of it. But yeah, these actual. are the actual words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that way they can, if they want to. Now, Jack and I are people that go into a museum and we read Read every word on every plaque. Some of us still exist. I don't know how many of us in life, but we do. So we would enjoy doing that. But we know that people, you know, want to get a little move on. So I thought, you know, at the bottom, make sure we say this is, you know, a synopsis of what it, what it is. Um, but I was like, we, we really have to to make sure that we capture um, that and not just put up what we want to write in our own thoughts, but actual uh, material that was um, yeah, a different, well, complete range of visitors to any kind of an exhibit like this, too. I know it's so easy to skip around because there's so much history with the small mm-hmm. family. Um, obviously, the original Len, um, mm-hmm. the first Len being one of the, the biggest uh, centerpieces of the family, when was he elected governor? In the 1920s. Okay. And two he, terms. I was going to say uh, two okay. terms. Right. And so what were some of the projects or things that he was known for besides the other things we mentioned, the controversies? What were the some of the other things that happened while he was in office that um, his name gets associated with? He was known as the Good Roads Governor. He um, made sure that roads were um, paved in the state of Illinois because automobiles were coming to light. And um, automobiles and um, muddy roads just, you know, didn't. Mm, Not with those little tires, (laughs) those very thin tires. So he. Um, made sure that there were thousands, I don't know, I don't know exactly how many thousands of miles that were paved mm-hmm. in Illinois, but a lot of roads to get built and they get paved under his um, direction. I think in the late 1920s, Illinois had more miles of paved roads than any other state in the country. Wow. He also, in a related thing, one of the problems that's come with good roads is it's easy for people bent on uh, <clears throat> crime to spread out, rob a farmer on his in his farmhouse and zip back to Chicago or whatever. Yeah. So I feel like the, that's been a problem ever since. Yes. Because <laughs> now it happens with the interstates. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but the problem was, of course, that Nobody had jurisdiction. You had local sheriffs and you had local police departments, but they couldn't follow this all up. Mm-hmm. He 
and, and there was a lot of pressure, but he was the one who implemented it, said we need a state highway police. There was a lot of opposition one way or the other to that from a political standpoint, but uh, he established a state highway police department, a man named John Stack, who was a Kankakee man who had served as a police officer in Kankakee and chief of police at one time, became the first head of the state police. Wow, I did not realize that 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 the 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 very first person ahead of the state police right. was this from is in nineteen twenty one, right after uh, after he was elected. Yeah, so actually, in many respects, Kankakee was the birthplace of, of the state police department. Interestingly enough, because of various problems with funding, the first state police operation was actually called the state. Highway Maintenance Police Department because they could find some money in the highway maintenance budget to uh -huh. pay for it. <laughs> and this see. went on for a number of years. Uh, the, eventually, initially they had, I believe, 50 and later 100 patrolmen around the around the state, and they, they all drove motorcycles. Okay. Which was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at that time. Uh, and eventually, after Governor Small was out of office, the, the whole— Thing changed and it eventually evolved. eventually became the current state highway police department. But mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. Well, I, did, I, did, oh, I, I did not know that. Um, fisheries. The state had a fisheries department, of course. What's fisheries? Uh, the they actually raised fish and released them into the waters for sport and so okay. forth. Okay. There was a fish hatchery in Kankakee. It was out south of the state hospital along the back. I think there's still some uh, gate posts or something back there. Another area, I'm trying to think if it's just a moment, it was in my head and flew right out. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, yes, Leslie, his son, uh, was the director of public works for the state after he was elected. And there was a huge number of public works. The Illinois Waterway, the first uh, locks on the Illinois Waterway, Dresden and, and uh, Joliet and down the way on the Illinois River, yeah. were built under the small, small administration as well. Okay. So he had a, just a wide a variety of... of things that he was involved in. Mm -hmm. A lot of development. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Wow, that's that's and of course there was always you know the suggestion that he was too much a uh, involved with the Chicago political machine and that sort right. of thing and yeah the uh, the indictment and so forth but yes. you know, you balance him out it's a good question mm -hmm. was, right was was he a saint or a devil <laughs> yeah that that mm -hmm. I think that's that conversation continues right. to this day and I'm sure yeah. it, that'll never get settled it'll continue there to be there are people who will definitely say he was he was not a good person he did all these questionable acts or bad acts and then there are people who say he he was great he did great things so yeah sometimes controversies will just stay that but yeah. the best that i think we can do is to make sure that we try to balance it the best that we can Absolutely. in the exhibit and not hide one portion just because it might yes. be, yeah. you know, yes. embarrassing or um, negative on it, but to make sure that it's all balanced. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, and really, as Jory said early on, our purpose in this was to provide a an exhibit that told the story of the small family as a whole and their influence upon the community and this community from its beginning to the present day, not to focus on the one member of the the family who achieved widespread state and national recognition one way or the other. And um, sorry, go ahead, Jory. Oh, just to yeah, just to make sure that um we do the best we can to um do the story, do the whole story, not the parts we like the best and not to eliminate the parts we don't like. But as a historian, I, I truly believe you need to look at history the way it was, not the way you think it should have been, but the way it actually was and present it as actual, factual as possible with actual um, artifacts uh, that present the whole story. Absolutely. And uh, going back to Leslie and the Daily Journal, um, really taking that over before it was the Daily Journal. Right. Um, so he passes away in, would you say, 1957? Right. And at that point, it was the Daily Journal. It was. 57 was the Daily Journal. Yes. yes. So from then, you said it was his two sons that yes. took it over? Yes, Len and Burl. Len and Burl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how, how does the story continue for the, the journal from there? Well, for a time, the two sons ran the operation together. Uh, in the ni- early 1960s, they decided to get into the cable television business. Uh, so Burl pretty much specialized in the the uh, television and uh, the radio business, of course, the WKN and originally uh, the, an FM station were part of their operation. When when did KAN come into the the small hands? Was it was it when Leslie was still? Yes, they okay. started it when the at that point the newspaper was located in a building at uh, Oak Street and uh, and Schuyler, mm-hmm. and right next door to that, just south. In the 1950s, I think it was, uh, they started the radio station WK, and they built a little building. In fact, that building is still there. It's a, it has a mural on one side. You can't tell what it looked like anymore. But Yes. Uh, and they also had WKIL, which was an FM operation. And eventually, they divested that. But uh, And then, as I say, in the 60s, they decided to go into cable television because that was the era when the only way you could get television signal in Kankakee was having a 50-foot-tall tower for you. Somewhere along the line, uh, the two branches of the operation were were separated. Uh, So Beryl ran the communications or electronic side and led the newspaper. When I came to Kankakee to work for the journal, my actual interview was with both the brothers. Yeah, because that was before they had split everything Before up. they, okay. But uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s and so forth, they really built a, a large newspaper empire that was, you know, nationwide and were quite a, and unfortunately since then, of course, with the changes of society and the way people gather news and read advertising today, they've gradually, they've sold off all of the other newspaper operations uh, and retain just the journal itself. Uh, 
And of course, just recently, well, for a number of years now, the newspaper actually was printed up in the northern, western suburbs of Chicago uh, because of economic advantages and the fact they probably would have needed to upgrade their printing, uh, you know, presses and so forth. It's very expensive. And it was possible to do that electronically and have the papers delivered. But just this past, what was it, January or February, they actually had, had shrunk the operation to the size where that large building at Dearborn and, and Merchant was just way too large and uh, keep upkeep and so forth. So they have now moved the newspaper operation to the PNC Bank building where they have two floors of the – one floor for the editorial department and one for the business side. And I don't know what's going to happen to that building. I would assume it eventually will be – if they can find a tenant, will be sold. Well, I I mean, I think we summarized it pretty well. Is there anything else you want to add about the small family uh, and the and tied in with the exhibit? Um, but we tried to do as, as far within the, the – um, Genealogy. Genealogy. Law. We did it as as far as much information as we have in our archives. So I wanted to make that point that we did it as far as we, we could go with photographs as far as we could go. Um, so if anybody is, is missing because we didn't have uh, <laughs> information. But um, if anybody is interested in doing – uh, further research on this family, any part of the family, any part of the businesses, contact me. I'm happy to um, to work with you and to show you. We can always show you more artifacts than we have on display, and we're happy to do that. You just need to contact one of us and make an appointment. Okay. And then I will be there in the house on Rhubarb Day. Um, except for when I take a little break, but I'll be in the house. And if anybody has any um, more specific questions, I am happy to answer any questions. And so would, would Jack. He won't be there that day, but we're happy to answer. Yeah, I'm going to be out of town on the rhubarb day. But... Oh, but you're in trouble, yeah. Jack. <laughs> How know. could you do that? On the prior, prior, festival day. prior commitment from a long time ago. Oh, no, I understand. I'm just teasing you. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, really want to point that out. Uh, the Rhubarb Festival is uh, May 22nd from 10 to 4. Um, so much happening. Um, obviously, rhubarb pie mm -hmm. is for sale. Strawberry rhubarb pie is for sale. It goes really quickly. Yes. We do want to point that out. So, you know, you want to get there. Yeah. And jam. Are we still in jam this year? Oh, jam. Yeah. yeah, jams, jams and jellies. Yeah, yes. jams and jellies. Uh, there's several vendors. There's a car show this year. Uh, there's a, a kids um, activity area as well. The the pie eating contest. Uh, so many things going on. Um, there's um, entertainment. There's entertainment this year as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many new things. So uh, I feel free to check that out. Uh, plenty of food. Um, on top of obviously yeah, the, food the, the pie, there. right? The food trucks. Um, I know Kankakee Podcast is one of the many vendors, but it's really always cool to see the, all the different handmade items that people have mm -hmm. uh, for sale. There's just so many cool things going on. Um, this is our, our beginning of 
the year, so to speak, season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, a quiet period from January till now, and then we get revved up. And this is our, our spring-summer season. Um, in the past, we've had Strawberry Fest a few weeks after that in our, our area, in the campus. But that's become such a huge, huge thing. That Just outgrew the space. To um, another location. But... Um, so that would be the spring summer, uh, and then we have many things coming up through the summer, and then of course um, December is our our gallery trees. Yes, kind of like the finale of the, that is the finale. Of the year. Yeah, and the fall we beginning. have our artisan fair as well. Artisan fair, yeah. Oh, and speaking um, of, I, I did want to mention that too. The uh, Kankakee Art League has yes. their art mm-hmm. on display at Rhubarb Festival yes, as so well. Yes, we display there... in the. Um, George Gray Barnard Room. Yes. So, uh, like I said, there's just so many different things happening at Rhubarb Festival. Uh, doesn't cost to enter. Nope. Um, Want to point that out as well. So, um, you can always go to KankakeeCountyMuseum.com to get more information, or you can find, um, you go to uh, Instagram or Facebook uh, at Kankakee County Museum as well. Thank you both again. Well, thank you for having us. Yes. We really enjoy doing this. Yeah, yes, me too. We always have a good time when we come to uh, do the podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. The feeling's mutual. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a family member, friend, or neighbor you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Harry O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vaselli, Eric Olson, Dan DeBoard, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Drenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. Now, to become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and click on the patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode of Kankakee Podcast. Now, there's also other rewards like access to extended versions of episodes, behind-the-scenes podcast episodes, podcast merch, discounts on special events. Uh, There's even an option for you and I to spend a day together at the Kankakee County Museum and so much more. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated, and our goal right now is to reach $400 per month, which right now we're at at about 60% funded. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. This river can